All right, what is going on, folks? It's JK coming back to you with another episode of the Help Me Understand podcast. Before jumping into today's episode, I want to preemptively give you a heads up that I am aware that about the first, let's say, about 20 minutes of this episode, uh, the audio is not the best quality, and that is definitely 100% on me. Uh, But I will definitely say that this is a conversation worth really sticking around for. I had a conversation with Lori Brown, and Lori is a respiratory care practitioner, uh, specifically working at a critical access hospital. And if you're not sure what either of those terms really means and why they're important to the context of this conversation, uh, again, just stick around and we will discuss that. I want to take a moment just to give you a bit of information on why I felt like this was an important conversation to have. Uh, As of the release of this episode, we're releasing this in March of 2022, and we are recently throughout the country uh, beginning to start seeing some changes with some restrictions and different things like that being lifted as far as things that were put in place uh, during the pandemic. And something that I've really been thinking about is the fact that uh, we all went through some various state of change as it was related to the pandemic over uh, much of 2020, 2021, and then going into 2022. And I think something that I've really been thinking a lot about is the fact that just because things are maybe opening back up or certain restrictions are being lifted, there are a lot of things that happened a lot of folks who went through a lot of different experiences over the past couple of years that i believe we're going to now start to begin to if we haven't already uh, we will very shortly start beginning to really experience the effects of the experiences that people have gone through over the past couple of years. And two two groups that are really front of mind for me are people that are in the medical profession and then people who have been in the education field. And that's specifically because uh, from my individual perspective, those are two areas where nobody has really gotten a break. Uh, There was a, a, a massive need for people in the medical field in whatever way, shape or form they were in the medical field uh, to continue to do uh, do their job clearly because they're they're directly impacting uh, people's lives. But there was this need for us to still have our medical uh, professionals who were directly on the front line and they didn't really get much of a break in any way, shape or form. And in fact, uh, from again from my perspective only i'm not going to speak for others so just from my perspective they were asked to go above and beyond and and many are still in that same boat and then the same thing uh as far as uh, teachers administrators in the education field so with all that being said one of the big things i wanted to do was sit down and have a conversation with somebody who could share their point of view on what the past couple of years has been like for them And we spend a good amount of time really kind of getting into some information for what really got Lori interested in getting into uh, the profession that she's in right now. We talk about uh, just what really inspired her, what keeps her going, and then really start from the beginning with her experience with going through uh, the different twists and turns of this journey that has been uh, COVID-19 in our country specifically. So uh, I really appreciate 
everybody who's chosen to press play on this episode. Again, uh, about the first 20 minutes, I am aware that the audio is not of the best quality. I do have to give a big shout out uh, to my audio guy who actually made it sound much, much better than it was when I turned it over to him. So props to him on that. Uh, But definitely stick around. And I hope that you really take something out of this particular conversation. All right, well, we're just going to go ahead and roll right into this conversation because I think we've, yeah, I think we've already been talking like 15 minutes before (laughs) we decided to hit record. (laughs) All right, so welcome back to another episode of the Help Me Understand podcast. We are finally back with a guest and um, I am, as always, super stoked to be able to sit down and have this conversation with Lori. So Lori, um, I forewarned you that I wasn't going to do a really long, drawn out explanation. One thing I will do though, um, in lieu of a big introduction, is just start off with how I'm acquainted with you. Because I feel like that little bit of context is always helpful when you go into these conversations. Because one of the most common questions that I get from people is, where do you find your guests? Or someone even, yeah, somebody even reached out and said, what do I do to apply to be on your podcast? Really? Yeah, I was like, uh, let me can I think of a professional response? (laughs) And then I started thinking, I'm like, honestly, I just reach out to people that I just want to have conversations with. And you might be surprised that these are just people that are kind of in my atmosphere in some way, shape or form. So Lori and I regular, normal people just doing their thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Lori and I go to the same training facility, uh, the, uh, what is overall known as power and fitness here in Bloomington normal. And um, you specifically though, frequent the Bloomington normal barbell club. That's right. That's right. And power lifter. Yeah. How long have you been powerlifting for by the way? Um, I don't know the answer to this. Yeah. I actually just started about four years ago, believe it or not. Yeah. It was only four years ago. Some days it seems longer than that, but yeah, um, I had always been a, a bit active. I think my story isn't necessarily new as far as everybody has that uh, story. They start off, you know, mm-hmm. I kind of did the whole CrossFit thing, functional fitness thing, okay, um, and then had a pretty big injury. And someone said, um, why don't you just stand still with weight? <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was it was much more professional than that, but that's kind of the funny the funny take on it. And I often say that, like, I'm just going to stand still with weight. And so, got introduced to like, uh, yeah, just strength sports. Met some strong women who I was like, I want muscles like that. I, you know, so that's that's really where it started off, and I just immediately fell in love with it. Immediately fell in love with it. Yeah. Okay. So, See, um, that's already interesting because I didn't know. I made the incorrect assumption right off the bat. So here we go with the the whole help me understand moment. Yeah. Made the incorrect assumption that you had been powerlifting for much longer than you have just based on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So that's, yeah, yeah, that's pretty interesting. I think, gosh, I was late thirties. I was like 36, 37, maybe even closer to 38. It's hard, you know, years ago the last right, three right. years i'm not sure but yeah i was in my late 30s when i started um powerlifting ah okay and you've yeah. um and 
and one of the things that I, I definitely want to mention here is we're not just talking like recreational. You've competed multiple times. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's, okay. That's pretty legit. All right. So yeah, yeah. Um, while I we could agree. go further down that path, the, yeah, I w- yeah. the reason that I brought you on <laughs> initially, <laughs> so that's how we met. And the reason that I brought you on though is because I wanted to have a conversation um, with you specifically based on your uh, current career. So you are yes. a respiratory care practitioner. And you work inside of a critical access hospital. So let's first start off with what is a respiratory care practitioner? Practitioner. So that name, much like um, nursing, can encompass so much. Um, Can you hear me still? Okay, perfect. Sorry. So that um, can encompass so much um, in the acute care setting as in a hospital. Uh, we work, we are cross-trained everywhere. So a respiratory care practitioner, a respiratory therapist, sees patients in the emergency room all the way up to neonatal intensive care unit, to the intensive care unit, regular medical floors. We're responsible for simple as simple as giving a nebulizer treatment with medication to help open up the airways. But overall, we're as experts in the cardiopulmonary health of patients. Um, again, that encompasses so much in a hospital. Um, We're responsible for ventilator management, life support, ECMO specialists, as well as um, pulmonary function tests, um, open heart. Me personally, I've been a part of open heart teams, bronchoscopy teams, um, life flights when I worked in neonatal intensive care unit. Um, I've been blessed and lucky to be on a palliative care team. Um, and that was in Southern California where we uh, had a group of people. It was considered no one dies alone. So we would sit with patients that didn't have family members that were passing away. Okay. Um, rapid response team. I mean, so a respiratory therapist wow. does a lot <laughs> in a hospital. Yeah. And I do have to say it's one of the few things in a hospital where we are cross-trained everywhere, and we literally see the patient from the emergency room all the way up to the intensive care unit. Um, that is wow. not unheard of to ha- develop that kind of relationship with a patient. And of course, at different hospitals, at a bigger hospital, you may just be in the intensive care unit or just be on a regular medical floor. But okay. every day is a little bit different. Man, so okay. It's crazy. It's It's really like... I had to put it on paper because I knew you'd probably ask that because it just, we're kind of known as like the, not jack of all trades, but there's just so much that we do in a hospital from, again, from, you know, doing EKGs to arterial advanced of lines, putting breathing tubes in. I mean, just chest tubes. It's, it's crazy the amount of stuff that yeah. we do once I had to put it on paper. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did put it on paper because I don't, I don't know that anybody could remember all that just off the top of their head. So yeah. the, one of the, the first things that I thought about is, as you were mentioning some of the different uh, roles that you fulfill yeah. in your job, is more likely than not, I have come across a respiratory care practitioner uh, more than a few times, especially as a child, because I was a severe asthmatic. Okay, um, yeah, absolutely. Severe, yeah, severe is probably an understatement at this oh point. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, as I was growing up, constant trips to 
um, the ER. Um, my son actually uh, inherited a bit of my asthma and so did my daughter too. So uh, yeah, yeah. they're very well acquainted with the nebulizer and breathing treatments and all, sure. all that stuff. So yeah, it just, you just took me back a little bit because uh, I have probably interacted with more RCPs than I will ever remember and probably just didn't know as a kid that 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 was the specialized position that was literally helping to save my life. It was a, a rough, rough upbringing from wow. a, a breathing standpoint. Yeah. So I was the kid who had not one, but probably two inhalers on them at all times. Like at all So times. really your success, um, especially in the health field that you're in, it can mm. be attributed to respiratory care practitioners. Can I just go ahead and say that? <laughs> you could, you could I... definitely do that. You could, <laughs> you could definitely do that. I do have to give credit to my parents, though, who, um, oh. who carried the mantle with multiple, multiple yes. trips back and forth. But okay. yes, we'll give them credit. I will definitely do that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so in your current role, you work inside of a critical access hospital. And um, I will go ahead and claim ignorance here because I sure, don't, sure. Um, I'm not able to describe exactly what that is. So that's, again, why I reached out to you. So what is a critical access hospital? So it's, an, it's very fascinating because I was very naive. And a little bit about my background is I went to school where we live here and then pretty much immediately moved to Southern California and did most of my after school training out there. So if I mean LA area. Let me stop you there for a second. Yeah. So you went to school here in here. Illinois and then yeah. went out to California. Any, yes. Anything in particular that led to that move? A boy. Got you. My okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. Fair. Yes. Um so it's like you skipped over that part. Other than it's he's my husband now. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> it worked out so far. Okay. Yes. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. So I moved out there and um, did most. And that was close to after graduation. So moved out there, did most of my learning, met most of my mentors. Who I can't uh, go on the podcast without mentioning all my mentors in Southern California who really, 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 really made me the first I am today in healthcare. Um, so I have to mention all of them and they know who they are because I still am in contact with um, and so even living out there, it's so urban. There's a hospital on every corner, essentially, right? So I had no idea what a critical access hospital was. So when I moved back to Illinois, so I was out there 10 years, moved back to Illinois, worked at the local children's hospital. Um, and that's where I worked primarily in neonatal intensive care unit. Um, my background, though, was also in adult critical care. And then um, my supervisor now who I have been friends with for many years said come to this little hospital in the middle of nowhere you have a lot of experience come bring some some new blood kind of thing and this is honest to goodness true story I said I'll come help you but I'm gonna be rude I'm gonna hate it and I'm just you know I wasn't humble at all I was like I'm gonna come and be bored and that was five six years ago and i I haven't left. You were completely wrong, weren't you? I I was totally wrong. I was totally wrong. And so what I learned was a critical access hospital. Um, A little background even on that. In like the late 80s or early 90s, rural hospitals 
were closing an alarming rate, like 400, 500 hospitals were closing, all for financial reasons. And so Congress, every once in a while, they make a good decision. So I'm kidding. <laughs> so Congress, Congress got together and said, okay, we got to do something about this. And they um, did something, Balanced Budget Act, I think it was in 1997. And it was in response to all these rural hospitals closing. And so they re-designated uh, these rural hospitals as critical access hospitals. And um, and that there was, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on all the financial aspects of that, but it just provided a financial cushion for these hospitals. And there are guidelines in order to be a critical access hospital. You can't be within, I believe it's 35 to 40 miles of another hospital you and there are different rules even on that because it's access to that hospital if you um, have really bad roads that mileage might be a little bit less so anyway you can't be within 35 miles of a hospital you have to have 24 7 emergency care um you can't be more than 25 beds um oh there's a there's a cap on the number there's a cap of on beds. the beds okay mm-hmm. okay yeah. and um there's a lot more to it than that, but those are the one, rules that I find fascinating. You can't be within like 35 miles, 40 miles of another hospital. Okay. So one of the things that I felt very strongly and very quickly about when I started working at this hospital was that we were bringing basic health care to a part of a community that normally would not get it. Why? Because you'd have to drive an hour at times yeah. to get basic health care. Um, And I personally, I really believe that everyone deserves access to healthcare. Now, certainly we can go on as far as universal health. You know, there's a lot of things that can Mm -hmm. go off of that, but I believe everyone deserves access to healthcare. And so if it wasn't for these critical access hospitals, which the state of Illinois, which is rural, and I believe there's 40 or 50 critical access in Illinois alone. But, you know, one in five Americans live in rural community. So it's something we often think of Illinois as like Chicago and St. Louis. Of course, St. Louis isn't in Illinois, but you know what I mean? Right. Well, we're, I mean, we're located smack dab in the middle. Of in the middle. Of, yeah. And actually cities, so. just in the area we live, um, off the top of my head, we have four critical access hospitals. Okay. Um, just off the top of my head. But. The particular hospital I work at covers nine counties. I mean, so you're exactly right. We actually are very rural, despite the, you know, little city we live in. <laughs> right. So, yeah, and for those who might not be yeah. familiar with where we live, we're both located yeah. in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois, which is which is not rural. However, we are surrounded by some very rural areas. So, yeah. okay, I just learned yeah. a whole lot more that I did not did not know. And I mean, do you, to your knowledge, do you recall any, like, what were the, the things that were leading to a lot of those rural hospitals closing? I know you mentioned, I'm not asking you to necessarily like teach a course here, but you had mentioned obviously from like a a financial standpoint, they were struggling. Did they have a change in how they were funded or? I think it wasn't necessarily a change of how it was funded. I believe that we saw an increase in bigger hospital healthcare systems Uh, at that time. Okay. Gotcha. Not to mention any, 
but I mean, even in our area, right, we've seen an enormous, oh, yeah. particularly two hospital uh, yep. healthcare systems kind of not take over, but I mean, but so I, over, I, yeah. but, <laughs> but I mean, I think that's, that's why. Interesting. Okay. Um, and with well, a critical aspects also- hospital, just to clarify, that is everything from basic care to emergency care. Absolutely. Absolutely. And every critical hospital is a little bit different, meaning what I just had mentioned, they have to encompass a 24-7 emergency care. Right. So you have to have a... But then going off of that, as far as specialties can be a little bit different, um, do you even have specialties, meaning cardiologist, pulmonologist, uh, nephrologist, things like that, kidney doctors. Um, So that is a little bit different. The services provided can be a little bit different. Um, Interesting. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, Okay. So let me back up just a little bit. What initially got you interested in healthcare? Well, I always loved medicine from a very, very young age, even at an age where I didn't recognize what I was doing. I would take my baby dolls and tape them like they were IVs. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. But I didn't know what I was doing, but I always was fascinated by medicine, was fascinated by the body, um, the physiological aspects of the body, just how everything about it. And I really, a cliche, I'm going to have to say, I really like the idea of helping people. So I was a kid that would make Greenpeace signs and hang it around my town of a thousand people. Okay. Gotcha. At like eight or nine years old. <laughs> so oh, like I had this like desire to really help people. And then I think it got ignited was when my stepdad was a social worker at the children's hospital for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And he was in cystic fibrosis group. He was in um and he had an HIV support group. So there's all these groups that I kind of threw events met kids and 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 people that had chronic health issues and that got me even more wanting to help people and so i don't i always loved medicine i just remember always loving medicine um and then um in my later teens early 20s i didn't go to school right away um so i am definitely the black sheep of the family my okay. entire family, yeah, uh, like went to school right away, got their master's or higher degrees. And I was like, I, you know, want to tour the U.S. in a van, which I never did. But okay. Let's just say you left <laughs> I, that part out. All right. I left that part out. No, but I mean, I just, I always, I just had a different path. Uh, I, I was one of those people, maybe I'm a little bit still, like the stove is hot, but I'm going to keep touching it. So I had my own path. And then um, was still taking classes, though, like random classes, pathophysiology, Mm -hmm. like, okay, maybe I'll do pre-med, again, still floating around. And I found out that I was pregnant with my daughter. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, maybe I should have more of a career. And someone said, well, my friend is a respiratory therapist. She's a respiratory care practitioner. She makes uh, pretty good money to support herself. Why don't you do that? And I said, okay, I wish I had a better story. (laughs) 
I, I will say this I mean, too. That's... The other thing, the other thing too, is I was always very sensitive as a kid. Okay. Um, out of like all my siblings, I I just felt things on a deeper level, not to get you know, but I did. I just really felt a lot of empathy and sympathy for people. And so initially, when I got into respiratory, um, and of course you have like the book part of it, right? So I'm sitting mm-hmm. in a classroom thinking, well, maybe medicine isn't for me because here I am in this classroom and this is not what I thought it was going to be. And then the moment I walked into the hospital, it was like all my all my personality traits that maybe were considered weaknesses, like being you know sympathetic or having empathy or being sensitive were just a huge asset. And I was like, I, this, I, this is where I'm supposed to be. And it was, it was that kind of, I'm not kidding when I say it hit me like lightning, like my first couple of times in the hospital, I'm like, this mm-hmm. is, this is where I'm supposed to be. So, like that moment where you were actually applying all that you yeah. had learned and marrying that with just your personality. With who and I was. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty powerful. So let me, let me ask you if you can recall, I mean, you're going down a particular path from an education standpoint, you're pursuing this particular specific, very specific, uh, position. Sure. And, you know, in the classroom, not necessarily loving it. What keeps you, what keeps you focused on continuing down that path to the point where you then can get into the area where you are in the hospital interacting with patients and then really starting to feel it? Because I, I'll give you context. The reason that I ask that is because I interact with quite a few people who will go down a particular path and then decide, you know, that's not what I want to do without actually going through the whole process. Like what I just took away is that you, you made sure that you saw the entire process through. Can you point to anything or uh, things that you thought about during that time that kept your, kept your head in the game? Wow. Um, on it, honestly, it was my daughter. Okay. I was my daughter. I was I was a single mom, and um, and how old was she at that time? Around what age was she? Uh, well, when I first started, she was I mean like three months old when I first okay. went back to school full time officially. So your single mom, um, she was, she three was month old daughter, little okay. Little. And can I tell a quick story? Absolutely. Said, okay. You're what like, am I no. gonna, I'm going to say no. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. You may tell a story. Yeah. Because I please think do. I really. Even though I I understand, I just feel like uh, this conversation may have a lot of tangents, but you know that's what it's about. It's Organic, what we're here for. right? It's all good. So when I first wanted to go back to school, I was a single mom with my daughter. I re- she was little because I, I remember her being almost looking newborn still. And I went to the local community college, and let me just say I'm bad at math. Well, I thought I was bad at math. Let me okay. say that. I thought I was bad at math. And so I had not done well in some of my college courses even prior to that in math. And we're talking, I had to start at like one plus one. In my, I mean, it was like, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. It was not, I was not. So anyway, um, and I'm sitting there with the counselor. And I said, I really want into this respiratory care program, but there's all these classes I have to take beforehand, but I, I really want to do this. I want to do this to, to better myself. It's medicine, my daughter, all this other stuff. And sh- and I said, I'm not very good at math. So if I end up going into this and it doesn't work out, you know, at least I tried. I remember saying that to the person looked at me and said, because I was like, 
23, 24. And she looked at me and goes, how old are you? And I said, 23. And she goes, you're going to be 32 with five kids and wonder what happened and no degree. You need to pick something easier. (laughs) This is a true story. And I started crying. I just had a baby, you know. I started crying. And I picked my daughter up. She's going to kill me for telling this story. But I picked her up and I put her in my Ford Escort. And I was driving home. And I just was crying. And I thought... I'm not going to let my daughter see this. Okay. She's three months old, but I was like, I know I have. So I turned around and I went back to that place and I said, no, like I want to have a meeting with a different counselor. This is what I want to do. My point is, and here I am almost 20 years later. So I hope that for (laughs) inspiration for someone who has those obstacles, because there's going to be those people in your life that tell you you can't do something based on your past. Yeah. Oh you know? man. Anyway, well, that's so, so all right. Random. And that's, and uh, that's today's, I... that's today's inspirational podcast. Thanks for tuning. No, we're good. Yeah, that's okay. I have to, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. That's kind of uh, winded, but I think it's important for people. Like I just really felt like for me, my higher power is God. And I really felt like he had me on this path. Yeah. You know, and so again, part of it was my daughter, and another part was like, I really think this is what I'm supposed to do, you know? Mm. Yeah. So you, I mean, you made up your mind, and it, I did. I don't know. It, it, it even, from my perspective, it even sounds like you were given a little bit of an extra push for those moments where you felt like, okay, this is maybe this is tough. Maybe this is not what I want to do. You had that person in the back of your head, perhaps, who had told you, like painted a very bleak picture and you you were determined to not have that be the case. And I have to say, along with those kind of conversations, I also had the opposite conversations. I'm sure people can relate to that, where I had people that would come at six in the morning and sit with my small daughter while I would go to class from seven to nine, then I would come home and pick her up, take her to the local daycare. Then I would go work the lunch shift. Yeah, I was a waitress and then I would come. So I had people that would watch my daughter for free. I mean, so there were, you know, you had opposites of people telling you that, well, this is going to be really hard. You're not going to be able to do it. What happens? You're going to be 32. I don't know what it was about. I guess when you're 20, I guess when you're 23, 24, 32 is really, you know, yeah, and for, for context, do you, are you okay sharing how old you are now? Absolutely. I'm 43. Same age. Okay. So we're, yeah. yeah. We're, I knew you were in the 40 range. So we're, yeah, yeah, yeah. same age. So now it's so funny <laughs> at 23, like you're going to be 32 in this. And now we're looking at 43, like 32. Yeah. It's like 32 is back in my younger days. And wonder what happens. That was, I still remember that. You're going to be 32 with five kids and wonder what happens. I got to tell you, you know, it, that would be really interesting to take this snippet and have a conversation with that person to have a help me understand where your vision for Lori came from, because yeah. that sounds that sounds a whole lot like projecting right there. But that person is not here to defend themselves. So in all fairness, though, I think that's a, a good a good reminder to those of us that are adults who are in position to impact uh, kids, teenagers, people in their twenties, thirties, forties—I don't care what age—just right, right. to really keep in mind that 
you know, your, your words, like they actually matter to people. So. Absolutely. Especially in, in a position that someone's looking up to you, you know, like. Yeah. This is supposed to be somebody who's guiding Like literally that's in the title. But now looking back at it, I do believe that there, maybe not so much anymore, but mind you, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, a thousand percent, there's a stereotype for single moms. Mm-hmm. There, there was and point. so i think i'm sure this person had seen a million people come in and out that day and a million you know what i'm trying to say and so here i am coming in with a baby and a carrier and she's like oh here's another one you know and again I, i'm not defending her but i'm saying like i think experiences with i, I just think that she probably didn't have a good day yeah. I will say I pass that along to my my 10-year-old often will say, you know, I think they're just having a bad day. And so I am happy to pass along. Like, people are allowed to have bad days, and maybe that was it. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, But you know what? My personality, I needed someone to challenge me, probably. I didn't That's know fair. it. That's but fair. But I think I needed someone to challenge me. And all she did was create a flame or a fire. Not a flame. Are you kidding me? No, she created a volcano that day yeah because and look here at you again, now here we are 20 years later and i remember that story like it was yesterday so right uh, yeah <laughs> okay know. yeah well that's that's anyway, fantastic so. all right so man that right there was pretty inspirational just to get an an idea of what your um what your background was like um your inspiration for getting into the field that you're in yeah. and really what you went through in order to get in the position that you're in today. So I think that, that that really speaks to a lot of the context behind why you're passionate about what you do now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Through. So let me, let me now kind of transition into, you know, what, what a day-to-day potentially can look like for you, which I realize in the healthcare field can be a completely loaded question, especially in the context of the last few days, because you were, you were basically, you know, snowed into a hospital four days, three, four days. Yeah. Uh, Tuesday morning till Friday afternoon. Yeah. Cause full disclosure, we had, uh, we had planned to record a few days ago, but you were coming off of multiple days and we were like, listen, let's just, like, let's just like, figure it out a different I, day. Yeah. Like over a 13 inch, 13 to 16 inches. Yeah. Of yeah. snow. And then because, and again, we keep talking about critical access hospitals. It's literally in the middle of nowhere. Right. So it's surrounded by a great town, but like in order to get there, it's country roads. Like there is no major, what you would call highway to get there. It's all country roads to get there. So yeah, I was snowed in. Yeah. So let's, (laughs) let's talk a bit about, and I'm, I'm going to try to have you do the best that you can, if at all possible, to try and think pre-pandemic. Yeah. We, wow. we may need to take some time to even like think back. So we're talking, you know, 2019. Yes, I know, which feels yeah. like a very long time ago. And it is a few years back now. But um, so if we talk about pre-pandemic, day to day uh what what on an average day would 
would a shift look like for you? Um, what sorts of things are you typically handling day to day? Sure. So in a critical access hospital, it's a lot of outpatient things. So primarily um, pulmonary function tests. Um, so just doing a test on studying the health of someone's lungs, as well as cardiac stress tests. Uh, we would have a few inpatients. We would have things happening in the emergency room. Um, but really, it was um, kind of uneventful, everyday things. I mean, it was never, we definitely had inpatients. We definitely, um, again, a lot of outpatient stuff being a smaller hospital, but it was, d dare I say, pretty chill. <laughs> Especially well, here from, and the reason I say that is because yeah. I also had, prior to working at this hospital, I had 10 plus years of working in really big hospitals, trauma centers. And so that in okay. itself, it's totally different than the kind of hospital I work in now. Okay. So um, that was a lot more ventilator management. Mm -hmm. management. Um, but I will say, and this will cross over to the critical access part of it, um, we saw a varying um, degree of illnesses. So okay. it wasn't just one illness that we saw day in and day out that caused someone to be in the hospital. It's kind of, do you know, understand what I'm trying to say? Like, assume that I don't. Oh, so for instance, every, every patient was a little bit different. You know, every okay. patient was there based on a different disease process. Okay. And, gotcha. You know, coming into COVID, it's, everyone has COVID now. Yes, gotcha. we still have. Okay. So yes, we still have um, patient traumas and and patients with mm -hmm. uh, you know regular pneumonia, not just COVID pneumonia. <laughs> okay, or, fair. You know, fair. just does that make sense? Yeah. So like, yeah. Before, um, it was different disease processes that we were dealing with. There was a variety. Okay. Um, and now it feels okay. like it's just COVID. Okay. And so, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. So you previously, know, I would say that that my colleagues in bigger hospitals would say the same thing. The that it's previously it was a variation of things that brought patients into the hospital, different traumas, disease processes, surgeries. Okay. Um, and not a common link previously. Yeah, yeah, that's a better way of putting it. There wasn't a common link. Okay. I don't know that I'd say it's a better way. Sometimes you just really have to dumb things down Different for somebody way. like me. So, <laughs> so, yeah. So that's okay. So previously dealing with a lot of different things. However, um, as far as like your day to day, especially what it sounds like compared to the environments that you were previously working in. Mm -hmm. And then now with working in a critical access uh, facility, you were, you were finding that even th that most of your days fairly predictable. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's the tone that I'm just kind of getting that you kind of, yes. you kind of are in a groove and you kind of expect 
certain things, which sure. it's really, I've, I always find that interesting whenever I'm talking to anybody that's in healthcare, like what they feel like is just an average day to other people. Yeah. To other people, you're like, I am oh, yeah. so sorry. Let me send you on a three week vacation to recover. And you're like, what are you talking about? That's an average Tuesday for me. So that's, I always well, find you, that interesting. You bring up a really good point that, and I have said this again, especially over the last going on three years is that Overall, healthcare is a very unique perspective because we see things on a daily basis that most people shouldn't see. And let me just say, our job is not the only one that does that. There are so many, so many jobs out there, occupations. Yeah. So I certainly don't want, you know, I'm obviously on a perspective of respiratory therapist working Mm -hmm. in healthcare front lines. So my perspective is of that. That's what we're talking about today. But I certainly don't want to minimize anybody else's occupation that also sees things um, that as a human, we don't necessarily should see, right? But what COVID did was it exacerbated that. So yes, yes. In 20 years, I've seen patients pass away. Of course, that's the nature of my job. Right. You exacerbate that by a lot. A lot. So yeah. healthcare changed dramatically over. So it's really funny when you ask me, <laughs> what was it like in 2019? You know what I really wanted to say? And I sh- I'm going to say it now. It was yeah. kind of boring. It was, it was like a chill <laughs> job. You know, yeah. here I am coming off a trauma center. Um, I don't want to say it was boring in the sense of intellectual because that was a whole different kind of healthcare. But mm-hmm. like coming off of trauma centers, working in a neonatal intensive care unit, working in adult medical care, and then you throw me in this 25 bed facility in the middle of nowhere. There was it, it was totally different. So again, I say, oh, it was just chill, you know. Again, you it was predictable, very predictable, especially in a small hospital, very predictable. But I wanted that, you know. Yeah. I was ready to have yeah, that I think after that's... so many years. I was ready for that. And you're going to find that, especially at these smaller hospitals, there is a lack of experience. In our department alone, we have over 140 years of experience. Nurses okay. are coming from bigger hospitals just to slow down a little bit, you know. Um, and it so almost that's... feels to me like this version of the medical version of like small town living where yes. everybody yes. knows everybody. You probably see oh. the same people pretty regularly oh, <laughs> like yeah. that, that yeah, sort yeah. of thing. And let me go you know? to, not to, I mean, eventually I think, well, I have tissues here Okay. because <laughs> I'm like, Fair. I probably will cry at some point, Yeah. but play into that. I was so used to telling my patients because I worked at bigger mm. hospitals. Okay living in LA or working in Peoria, the children's hospital. Um, I didn't really know my patients. I mean, every once in a while there'd be like, you know, six degrees of separation, Kevin Bacon kind of thing. Yeah. But I smaller hospital, you know, you see people, you know, pass away. And Mm. that has been very intense. So yeah, in a good way, everybody knows everybody. In a bad way, everybody knows everybody. Um, well, yeah, I've I've yeah. got to I I have to imagine that that creates a different level of connection 
to oh, uh, yeah. to the people that you're taking care of because even based on what you shared and I I will just pause very quickly here to say this is all of the conversation that we've had leading up to this point is for the purpose of being able to hopefully help people understand that when you have someone who I'm talking to, there's more to them than just the position mm -hmm. that they hold. There's a lot that goes into that. So that's that's oh, one yeah. of the reasons why I do spend a pretty good chunk of time talking about different things that maybe the average listener might be like, what does this have to do? Like, when are we getting to the, when are we getting to the juicy thing? And I think that's kind of the point is take, a, take some time to try to peel back the layers of context prior to having a reaction to what someone says or does like when you can you know try and take that time to to do that because well i also think that's important. Too, we have to get my opinion we have to remember the human side mm -hmm. so we are so overly inundated with uh, research, research, research. This person says this, this person says this, this person says this, blah, blah, blah. I mean, just like, and we forget, I think we have forgotten about the human side of this. Um, so I do appreciate the conversation going on right now. The yeah. dialogue. I think it's important to remember the dialogue um, that needs to be had. This kind of conversation needs to be had because yeah, there's, and, and my story is not different than other there's so many people that have a very right. similar story and passion going into healthcare passion um yeah and that's not and it's just not uh, you know the environmental services that are keeping our rooms clean sterile you know sterile processing physical therapy speech therapy social work i mean it's not the, the interdisciplinary team that goes into the last three years and I know we keep going back and forth and I apologize for that, but like oh, interdisciplinary team that, that goes into it, um, that goes into keeping me safe. Yeah. You know, that maybe they're not dealing with the patient like I'm dealing with the patient, but they're keeping me safe. Central supply. I mean, I just, I radiology do an extra, I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. So even though I have my story and where I've come from, my mm -hmm. story is no different. So I hope that people know that I am not unique in that passion. I'm sorry. <laughs> well stated. I, well, no need to apologize. I think that's a well stated <laughs> point of view. And uh, I think that provides a good transition into thinking about and getting your perspective on what are some of the aspects that you've seen change over the past sure. couple of years uh, with, you know, related specifically to COVID because where as somebody who's an outside observer, all right. So um, I am the, probably the definition of outside observer when it comes to healthcare, because I have no experience in the healthcare field. Um, I have um, thankfully I have had, as far as I can remember, over the past couple of years, I have not had the occasion to require a hospitalization. I'm talking slowly because I'm thinking, but I haven't required any sort of a hospitalization over the past couple of years. So I haven't been inside of a hospital to witness what it's like here locally. Um, 
I have, I, I believe if I can remember correctly, I've been inside of a doctor's office or something like that two to three times over the past two and a half years. And they were primarily um, a very short appointment for myself and then a couple of appointments for my kids. And that's so definitely outside observer. And what I what I've observed from a mostly let's call it mostly like social media standpoint from the people that that I am connected to like yourself and others is overall um, a very large shift in what day to day is like. And the perception that I get is that COVID has definitely been the game changer because even with oh, yeah. your description of, you know, where, what your day-to-day was like before and not necessarily seeing what I called like a link in or a commonality necessarily in every, almost every person that comes in or a large percentage or a, a big primary chunk of the people that come in. Now there is um, something like COVID that seems to be pretty much a part of a lot of the patients that you see. And then also I'm going to make an assumption and then this is where I want to really open it up and have you kind of share. But I, I make the assumption that it's not just about, okay, well, this person has COVID. So we just do this one thing and then that's now different. It's what I like to call like this carryover effect where because of that one this this one thing there are so many other things that are affected because we're talking capacity we're talking difference possibly in equipment we're talking about equipment availability all of these different things and then also you know i'm i don't know i i won't go on because the whole point was to have you share your perspective so (laughs) let's start with that as a fairly open question in what are some of the things i know we can't go over all of them but what are some of the things that come to mind for you when it comes to how covid has affected what your day-to-day looks like with your job now so even in that question it's so multi-layered because i have the uh kind of the professional person personal, emotional aspect of things have changed over the last three years. And then I have the just um, very like algorithmic, robotic, how things have changed. So maybe I'll start with just just that part of it before okay. we get to the emotional part of it. Sure. I mean, yeah. so initially, um, and I think a lot of hospitals felt this way, uh, you know, and I don't want to sit here and say I represent everybody out there, but my truth right. and my experience was... We believed, uh, especially because where we're geographically located, we believed, and I, I believe it was an asset because we're com- we're isolated, even Bloomington Normal. Even though it's you know a large town, it's still geographically isolated. Mm-hmm. So we were, I don't want to say naive, but we saw New York and LA get hit with COVID first. Of course, you know, Italy and the horrible pictures you were seeing from there. And I do think there was a little bit of um, that's not going to happen to us at that level. You know, that's we're not going to have any problems like that. Um, Even working at the critical access hospital, only 25 beds, we 
only had so many ventilators. There was a lot of um, oxygen delivery devices that we have now, but prior to COVID, never needed. Never needed. Um, so just to clarify, you yeah. had them but didn't use them or you didn't even have them previously? We didn't even have them. We didn't even have some of the the uh, the equipment we even have because we didn't yeah, and you're And you're intimately tied into all things breathing here because that's yes. what you do. Yes. Like that's your position Absolutely. as a as a respiratory care practitioner. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted no, to clarify no, yeah. that. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so there were, th you know, we had uh, ventilators. Some people call them respirators. <laughs> we had ventilators, but we only had maybe two or three ventilators, and they weren't used that often. I mean, one of the aspects about a critical access hospital is most of the time when people, and, and it's still like this, but more so prior to COVID, when people need a higher level of care, we easily transfer them. It wasn't, do we have a bed? can we transfer? How far do we have to go to transfer this patient? So prior to COVID 2019, it, patients were transferred. We didn't have to worry about um, long-term care, um, intensive care of patients. Even though we could do it, it would only be for a short period of time. A thousand percent, we could do it. But um, And then once COVID hit, again, even in the beginning of COVID, we saw, and I'm sure people saw on the news, like massive triage tents that necessarily being used. We immediately shut down. We weren't doing um, elective surgeries. So my particular hospital did not see um, a lot of COVID patients. And frankly, we kind of were not seeing a lot because elective surgeries were canceled. So I think we got a little comfortable thinking, well, this isn't going to be that bad. And I think a lot of people thought that, especially in the area we lived, you know, um, this isn't going to be that bad. We're going to be fine. And then, um, you know, for me personally, there was a bit of a shift in the end of March, beginning of April, 2020, I got COVID. Okay. Um, and actually it was before we even started wearing masks. We, there weren't masks in the hospitals yet. Again, other urban areas, East Coast, West Coast, we're seeing this, but like us in central Illinois, um, I got COVID and was very sick for three weeks. Mm -hmm. And I think for me personally, that changed a lot of perspective. Um, and so coming back to work after being sick, um, you know, all of a sudden now we're all wearing masks, but again, not seeing the patient population increase too much. It okay. really wasn't until I want to say summer to fall of of maybe 2020 into 2021 that we started seeing it increase and it it's so weird time is a weird thing right now so it's even hard to remember when right. all of a sudden I know. we saw you know it all yeah. of a sudden we saw this increase but I do remember the beginning of of what we would call quarantine or pandemic or lockdown whatever the beginning of 2020 where we weren't seeing a lot so we again we were like oh and then it felt like overnight it felt like overnight we were inundated with with patients and how are we going to um, keep these patients safe? We have to rent equipment because we don't own it. We have to. I mean, there's just things changed overnight. So when you're uh, this is fascinating to me because uh, the timeline wise, it's 
I say fascinating just to think about no, yeah. how how it was being perceived from your point of view. And right. then and where by the way, where where is your primary information coming from as far as how to function as a medical professional? So, you know, the reason let me give you the context. The reason that I asked yeah. that question is because what you're describing as far as um, what I'm going to paraphrase is that feeling of kind of like, okay, like I'm observing and I see these things are happening, but that's, that's kind of like a them thing, not a us thing. Like, it seems like it's, it's, it's overseas and then, okay, well it, it, it's here, but it's in Chicago, it's in New York or it was more New York, LA. So you're hearing like the big, like highly densely populated cities. Right. And for somebody like myself, that view is primarily formed based on media, whether it be social media or traditional news media, that sort of thing. So that's, that's where I get that from. I was going to ask you how you felt during like the beginning of 2020, not being in if you felt the same way, like, okay, this is something's happening, you know, I, I'm very much of like, not out of, yeah. I'm not, I'm not naive to happenings around me, mm-hmm. but certainly, especially wearing different hats, you know, husband, father, you have your own career. Were you concerned about it in, at the beginning of 2020? Did it have, did you think it would get to where it was now? So here's, yeah. Curious. I'm yeah, well, I'm being, I mean, interviewed on my own podcast. I kind of no, dig I'm this. Um, so, <laughs> and also you're in healthcare. I mean, you play a part in healthcare, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. You yeah, do I, you do play I'll be straight up. It feels, it, it's difficult for me to say that I play a part in healthcare when I'm talking to someone who legit plays a part in healthcare. Let's just say I play a part in encouraging people to live a healthy lifestyle. Right. Okay. Cause I got it. I want to make sure that like flowers go where they're supposed to go, (laughs) not to like the, not to the neighbors next door. All right. So, yeah. Okay. So with that being said, um, my initial, so my initial reaction is, it was the same as my initial reaction is to just about everything. And it's a, just a, an overall mindset of state of mind that I've had for a, quite a while now, which is very much, I had no expectation of when it was going to be over and no expectation of how long it was going to continue for. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very much like a, I'm down to play the long game for however long it takes. The most that I can do is I can control what I can control and I influence what I can influence. And that is probably for most people, a very like dry non answer. How be ever, as my grandfather always would say, how be ever, (laughs) that is how I've been able to, what I think is maintain my sanity because as a father of two kids where we were and continue to be in a situation where we're not a hundred percent at that time, you know, I believe the big message was flatten the curve, right? Yeah. So there was this whole conversation around like, it'll be two weeks or whatever it might be. And if everybody can just band together and do this thing, then we'll be okay. And blah, blah, blah. And, um, I can truthfully say in hindsight, I never bought into the two weeks. 
-hmm. I also had no reason to argue against the two weeks. I think that I've just been in enough situations where the outcome was so out of my control that if I tied myself into, well, if I do this thing, then it'll turn out to be this way. I've just... I would, I, I felt like that was just not going to be a healthy way for me to process it mentally. Sure. And then also I'm just one of those people who like my favorite Mike Tyson quote is everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> right. So I plan to get punched in the mouth. So the way that I handled it was very much like, you know, when the kids were, um, kids were doing school from home. And of course, they're wondering, you know, when are we going to go back? And it it was my daughter's freshman year in high school. (laughs) So, you know, like, what are we, where are we going to go? Or actually, I'm sorry, 2020 would have been the end of her eighth grade year. And then, then we had freshman and high school year that was mostly remote for the most part. Um, All I could do was just not ignore the questions, but just be like, you know what? I'll be straight up. I have no idea. (laughs) Here's what I know what we can do right right now and just look at it that way. So that's that's how I have continued to handle this sure. has been a legit a day by day approach. Doesn't mean don't plan for the future, but just a very day by day approach and what can I do to best benefit myself and my family each day. Yeah. And that's how I I think I've maintained my sanity for the most part. Other people story. might disagree, but yeah. But it. <laughs> and next but back time to we'll the... be your wife to tell us the truth, no, or your kids I know. to tell us the truth. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, but... I definitely felt so. To kind of spin off of that, yeah, I definitely felt professionally a need to protect my coworkers. I hmm. even though we hadn't seen, um, initially hadn't seen very many cases. Or if we did, they weren't hospitalized. Or if we did, we sent them to a bigger hospital. Um, I I remember writing the interim protocol saying, if we, I mean, I remember it saying, if we happen to see a PUI, which is a patient under investigation, if we have, I believe it said, in the unfortunate circumstance, we have a PUI in the emergency room. Here are all the, here's what we should do. In the unfortunate circumstance. So I think I, gosh, I think I was, I'm very much a planner. Professionally, I'm a planner. Like I plan for the fire to happen. I plan like the idea. And I think at the time. You also plan to get punched in the mouth, just like I do. Maybe that's it. Yes. Well, I I use my perspective of we have a cardiac arrest cart. So when someone, we call it the crash cart. So a lot of people are familiar with that term. If you've ever watched any type of medical drama, I was going to say big cart. Yeah. And it has everything on it that you need. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to go scream. Well, you sometimes scream for stuff, but you, it has everything in this little cart. And that's how I thought of the beginning of, you know, 2020 into yeah in 20 beginning of 2020 i thought okay let's get our crash cart so let's plan for the worst it's not gonna happen (laughs) i was one of those people let's plan for the worst we'll be fine because again Mm -hmm. um many of us at my hospital had come from bigger hospitals i lived in southern california during h1n1 um so i very much was like it's gonna be fine we're gonna be you know like Again, planning, talking about, you know, talking about in worst case scenario, I use that a lot, 
worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, but in my heart, not not knowing, not understanding the what it was going to go to. And then also, you know, I have a lot of colleagues in Southern California. I remember making a video on social media because I was sending them in 95s because there there was a very serious shortage out there. Yeah. And I was sending and again, we had plenty. <laughs> I mean, so I was sending them allegedly sending them um, in 95s and <laughs> PPE and fair, making fair. sure that they were safe. And I remember crying on this video because you, you, I had colleagues message me saying we, we don't have enough in 95s. Hmm. Um, and I can't even, you know, when someone's in the same profession, there is just this umbilical cord, so to speak, there's this yeah. feeling of when it, someone's in your same profession you can't imagine not having enough equipment or not. And at the same time, I was naive because I was like, that would never happen. To- I, I, I didn't think I was trying to be positive more than naive, but um, so for me, happening to colleagues and I wanted to take it serious and I wanted to be in our department. Um, but I don't, I never imagined the extent that, that it would come to, especially at a small hospital in the middle of nowhere. That's the key. Oh, it's going to happen at the bigger hospitals, but we'll be able to, you know, send our patients out. It'll be fine. So go ahead. Yeah. So my question then, I mean, this is, this feels like the natural transition is when, when do you, can you recall when you had that hold up? Something's different. Yeah, this is this is actually coming to us like kind of that that like, oh, no moment or and I don't want I don't want to put those words in. No, I remember the exact date. Yeah. Tell me about that. No, that's Um, that's great. I remember the exact date. It was March. I believe it was March 12th. It was a Wednesday. And 2021 2020 so it was still 2020 early on. oh wow okay here's the thing yeah it was still early on um it was still early on but again i was very naive it was still early on and i remember being on a phone call with like the illinois department of public health and i was just listening so i was I had the blessing of being able to listen to this conversation. And on this, the Illinois Department of Public Health, someone from Illinois Department of Public Health was saying, we have to shut down all the nursing homes. This is real. We're seeing it in Chicago. Like, this is coming. We have to be proactive. And the tone of this person's voice, something about it, something about it. I was like, now, mind you, in December of 2019, I believe, is maybe when California, Washington, when, when they started to see it a little bit. Of right. course, it was like, we're not going to see it here. And so right. from December, January, February, March, I was like, oh, we won't see it here. And the moment I heard that phone call, I was like, oh, th- there was something in this person's voice that was like, we have to be proactive. Gotcha. And that's when... I was like, okay, it's not if, it's when. Now, I have to say that we then spent several months still not seeing very much happening. Okay. So I still, you, it felt like we were in limbo, like just waiting for this thing to happen that was happening all around us. 
And I, I kind of get the yeah, I get the feeling of you know, I think we can we can both relate to this. It's like a a pending storm that's supposed to be coming. Oh yeah. And then you, you know, uh, you go, you get all your supplies and everything and then yeah. you you're like, wait, where, when's it coming? Yeah. I had a unique perspective because I was hearing firsthand accounts from my colleagues in California. Right. So, so you continue to have that connection the entire time absolutely. too. Absolutely. So it wasn't yeah. even like social media or, or the news or, or anything that I was hearing it from. I was okay. hearing like firsthand accounts from people. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Do you, if you can recall, did your colleagues in California seem to feel the same way that what was happening there seemed more isolated there or or feel otherwise? And let me give you a little bit of background on why I'm asking that question. Uh, this is going to feel unrelated, but I will do my best to bring it back okay. around. Uh, there's a podcast that I listen to pretty regularly called How I Built This. And the host on there, his name is Guy Raz. He interviews uh, people who have built companies, like entrepreneurs specifically. And I remember that one of the entrepreneurs he interviewed owns a coffee company. And uh, just like many other industries, they had to make a major change. I don't even want to say pivot because this wasn't a pivot. Like they had to ch uproot and change their business because grocery stores, you know, being able to get supplies and get things into grocery stores for most companies was very, very difficult at the time. And the majority of their sales were either grocery stores or this coffee company had actually signed a ton of contracts to put a lot of money into coffee delivery to office buildings. But what's one of the first things that happened during shutdown is everybody shut down their office buildings and went remote, right? So one of the things that he, the host asked this, um, this owner of the coffee company, and I promise this will make a point, is he asked, you know, how difficult was it to do that, um, you know, to pivot your business to primarily selling online, like they came up with these packages and all this stuff that they did online. And the owner said, Yes, it was difficult. However, we were way ahead of everybody else in our industry. And mm -hmm. he asked, like, how, why, like, how possibly could you have seen this coming? And it was because the owner, um, I believe her and her husband had contacts back in China. And they had heard about what was happening there. So basically at that point, if we can remember back to like the beginning days when right. people were thinking, some people, I'm not going to put this on everybody. Some people were thinking that it was maybe isolated to China. Then they, the owners of this coffee company, took that seriously mm -hmm. because they didn't think it was going to be isolated. And they said they actually told some other colleagues and other colleagues were thinking it was going to be isolated. But they thought to themselves, no way. This is eventually going to come our way. So we need to go ahead and make this change very early. So she and her husband had that information from their colleagues back in China. So they shifted their entire business and ended up coming out way ahead because the people who were now working from home were trying to find like ways they could, because, you know, everybody's still got to have their coffee. They're trying to figure out ways that they could get their coffee. <laughs> so how I bring that back to that question is, yes, you know, I you're like getting coffee. this information. Yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. So getting, getting back to what you were talking about, as you're having that communication with your colleagues mm -hmm. in LA, 
are they feeling like you know, don't get comfortable because this is eventually going to make its way to you yes. or were they also, okay. So they were not feeling like this is just an isolated thing in major cities. No, not at all. They were just as saying it's of, about, it's a matter of time. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the critical care physicians that I still, I'm still very good friends with an incredible mentor. Um, it was in January of 2020, I messaged and jokingly said, and again, now that I'm thinking of the timeline, it's like, it seems so long ago, but at the same time, things just, time is such a weird thing. But I remember messaging him and going, should I start hoarding things like LOL? Again, I say that not knowing that people are going to do right. that. Okay. So at the time right. I was kind of joking again, pleasantly, pleasantly naive, like, oh, we won't have to worry about it. Um and he said, I would start, I remember him saying I would start getting over-the-counter meds, you know, just a couple extra bottles here and there because, okay. yeah, this thing is real. And so that was in January or February that conversation happened. And then in March, I heard the conversation from IDPH. And I was like, wait, maybe this really is going right. to hit us here. Um in a small hospital, we need to be a little bit more prepared, or at least it it we need to acknowledge it could be here. Let's not like okay. just, but no, they for sure, uh, they for sure knew that it was going to be bigger than just the isolated L.A. area or okay. Chicago or New York. Yeah. So, okay, so we move to the point where you're you've realized, okay, this is, this is happening. I just thought yeah. of the office, which is, yeah. With the scene where it's, like, it's happening, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. This is happening. What do we do? That <laughs> yeah. has gone through my head. I think we have a yeah. similar sense of humor. And, yeah. Maybe uh, it might be slightly I, dark, but yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think, yeah, I've thought about that several times. It's happening. Yeah. So as you, and I realized that you know, there might be a lot of gaps to kind of fill in here. And I'm sure. still going to, I'm still going to just kind of move, move the car down the road, I guess I would say with, you realize that, okay, something's changing. This thing is coming. Then right. it's here. Yes. And there are things that start to be a bit more difficult. There are supplies or one of the things that I, I jotted down that you talked about wasn't the supply thing. It was actually it was just even the, go ahead. I was going to say just um, access to um, equipment that we would need. Um, again, being a smaller hospital, um, and I think I can speak for my colleagues, but I'll speak for myself. Uh, mm -hmm. There were certain oxygen delivery devices that I thought we won't need that. And now we have five of these devices. Um just things like that, that I, th I thought, oh, we won't need, we're not going to need that. And and now all of a sudden, here we are, fast forward, we have yeah. for a 25 bed facility, we have a lot of equipment. Um, luckily, I will say that as far as PPE, which is personal protective equipment, we've heard of a lot of shortages at the time, beginning of 20 into 2020. I never experienced that. I feel like, um, particularly my hospital did an incredible job and something that they did was so of course some of the fitness centers associated with my hospital were closed they took those people and they made 
personal protective gowns out of garbage bags, out of um, like plastic tablecloths. Um, I mean, I don't know what the final count was, but thousands, thousands. And so we, they're extremely proactive. So I never felt like I don't have enough protective. I never got that. Luckily. I mean, I'm so lucky that, but yeah, definitely the moment we realized, which was probably more into 2021 when we're thought we are going to need more ventilators. We're going to need more what we call heated high flow devices, which delivers oxygen at a very high flow, up to 60 liters. We're going to need more BiPAPs, which that provides a higher pressure. It's a special mask. It's a step before you put a breathing tube in. We're going to need these things. Because what we started to see was the bigger hospitals were so inundated with patients. And again, I can only speak for my truth and the the uh, news media for our local area was right on for the amount of patients that the bigger hospitals were seeing. That wasn't made up. Those numbers weren't made up. Um, okay. They were – so we were not able to transfer patients. Then normally we would. Well, let, so, me, let me ask you for clarification. When you yeah. say bigger hospitals, I want to yeah. clarify because I think that – I think that some people may be thinking, you know, bigger hospitals still means t- going to Chicago or whatnot. You're talking oh. bigger hospitals being something like, for those that are familiar with central Illinois, you're talking like transferring to say like Bloomington, Springfield, Peoria, Champaign sort of thing yes. or, yes. okay. For for my particular. These are still like on a good day or considered mid-major cities on a good day. Not yeah. not like heavily densely populated areas, just right. to confirm. Okay. So right. we're talking Champagne, which has like a level one trauma. Mm-hmm. And then you have Peoria, which has a level one trauma. Okay. okay. They're how they're pretty far away from each other. I mean, in the sense of yeah. like you need medicine right now. You need emergency care right now. They're far correct. Those are the two yeah. trauma centers. But then you have in our town, Bloomington Normal. I think they're level two traumas, at, but bigger hospitals with okay. with some more specialties and things like that. Um, so primarily my hospital trans, well, initially we transported to Champaign and Bloomington. We've gone much farther during this time, though, to get patients care because there were no. And men. yeah, and just from a to help be able to clarify that. So mileage wise, you typically, so typically you would transfer folks in what sort of a mileage radius usually? Um, typically. Yeah. It was within, uh, 50 miles. Yeah. Okay. For, for, yeah. In the 40 I'm to 50, 50 mile 50, range, 40 to 50, 40 to 50. Yeah. Okay. And then you're saying, and now it's, well beyond that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. And that's specifically we, based on capacity. We've, absolutely. We've called as far as Des Moines, um, certainly suburbs Ooh. of Chicago, um, Indiana. Um, and that, and oftentimes, by the way, beds will open up. And that's another thing. It's very ebb and flow. With, mm-hmm. So when we talk about how much, how many beds are open in a hospital, that literally can change hourly. So hmm. that is something that I think not a lot of people understand too, is that the, the bed situation, um, 
can change very quickly both ways. <laughs> okay. And I appreciate you uh, shedding some more light on that. And I also want to be respectful of your time. This is a really fascinating conversation for me. I, I'm am learning I talking a lot. too much? No, not in the least bit. Um, okay. I could I could ask questions like, nice, all day here. I was going to say, is that a nice way of saying we got it? No, I also, no, I also have no problem being like, all right, okay. wrap it up, box. Um, <laughs> so I think you're shedding some light on something that from my perspective as someone who primarily got their information based on media and yeah. not having um, intimate knowledge from from people inside of hospitals yes. um, or in you know uh, care facilities whatever it may be I remember th- and what continues to be the ma- the majority of the messaging that I was getting was around the fact that the biggest concern is beds so bed mm-hmm. space not having enough beds and right. Um, I think that you sharing a bit more context around, you know, previously, you know, you're a 25, you said you could not have more than 25 beds in your facility, right? Right. And my particular facility, I'll go into just a smidge more detail with that. There's so many beds that are allotted for mother baby. There's so many beds allotted for surgery, joint replacement. So as far as actual medical beds, not counting the emergency room, we have about 15 actual medical beds. A okay, lot of, do, do those rules stay in place no matter what? Good, so, so that's a good yeah. question. So the beginning, so uh, when, state of, when Illinois was put in a state of emergency, mm-hmm. many of those critical access rules or guidelines went out the window. They did, okay. So they went out the window. So they said... No, you can open more beds. No, you don't have to have just 25. You can have more medical beds. Um, Patients can stay longer um, with a breathing tube or intubated. There's a lot of rules that change with that. Now, something to remember, too, that we're hearing a lot about is staffing. So, I mean, just to give some perspective is I am not aware of very many hospitals that can actually work at 100% capacity. Because there's just not the staffing. I mean, we do have to sleep sometimes. So, so <laughs> right. right. So, I mean, right. it's something also to keep in mind that, like, you have to be able to staff those beds and mm. try and staff them safely as well. Um, okay. So, that's something to keep in mind. I mean. Yeah. So, so this is where I want to ask you how how certain things kind of make you feel and to be really specific on this. And at first I'll, I'll put the disclaimer out for you that how, what you express is your individual opinion. Um, I, I don't, I don't plan to take what you say and say that, well, everybody, everybody named Lori feels this way, you know, whatever it may be. So I know how I feel when I may read a post that says something about something in the it, that basically tries to downplay the effects of the state that we're currently in from a pandemic right. standpoint so something that i'm just going to try and keep it pretty general because it, there's not there's not even like you could go into specifics but there's so many it would just be like going all over the place but overall when you see messages on social media especially from those who are not involved in healthcare who 
are speaking about um, the fact that maybe this whole thing is somewhat overblown. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that we are, you know, we're being fed a particular narrative by the media that wants us to be afraid of something that really we don't need to be afraid of um, when they're, you know, posting some sort of a study about a percentage survival rate. And this survival rate means that most, most people who are pretty decently physically fit, you know, and drink sure. their water will be fine. Just overall. Fat. Yeah. How, I know this is a very broad question yeah. and I'm still going to ask it and you can go in what, dire what direction you'd like to, how do, how do you process when you see things like that or hear things like that? Well, I have to start by saying I think my my opinion, my perspective, how I've felt over the last three years, going into three years, has changed. Okay. Um, I it, it absolutely has changed, and I compare it to the five stages of grief. Honestly, you know, denial, anger, uh, depression, acceptance. What's uh, bargaining? <laughs> um, so there we go. I had to get all of them in there. So. Throughout the last, let's just say three years for sake of argument, I have felt all of those things at different times and continue mm -hmm. to work through all those things. Um, initially, when I initially in even the summer of um, I got angry when people complained about having to quarantine or isolate or um, social distance. And full disclosure with all of this, my mom passed away suddenly. And so, and we didn't have a funeral for her. And I, I say that story or I say that because that was also, again, my truth, my experience, it fueled me. And I said so many times, I didn't have a funeral. So you could be safe. And I mean, you as a general, you know, statement. Right. right. So there was some personal, like, there were some personal things behind, not only was I a healthcare worker on the front lines, reading this stuff. But then there is that also that personal side of me that was like, no, I'm, I'm trying to do my part too. And dealing with that grief in itself. So, right. Right. So initially I got, I personally, and I know that family and friends will agree. <laughs> I got very angry initially before I really learned that that wasn't going to be very proactive. Uh, for myself, you know, my own health. That wasn't right. Good. Um, I think you touched upon something. Fast forward to where we're at now. When we talk about death rate, um, here's the thing. There's several things we can't argue. I don't think we can argue. One is absolutely the healthier you are. It doesn't matter what the process is that's going to attack your body. I say this all the time, and you can stitch it on a pillow. I say this when I'm out working out in my garage. I say it, I'm training for something that hasn't happened yet. Whether that's when I'm 80 and I fall on ice, whether that's a, a cold I'm going to get next week, whether the, it, mentally the things that can happen, I'm training for something that hasn't happened yet. So there is absolutely no argument, at least from me, saying the healthier the lifestyle you have, the better you will, the outcome could be. But that's for anything. So right, that narrative, right. it's like, well, but no one's reinventing the wheel saying like, hey, if you don't sit on your couch, you have more active lifestyle, potentially you're going to fare better. I think we all kind of know that. Right. Um, the 
the problem, not the problem, when a, a pandemic hits, it happens so fast that it's very hard to just say, okay, go exercise, you'll be fine. It, it's a little, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? Yeah. I hope it has motivated people. Um, but again, that's a whole nother podcast, right? Um, True. I might do an episode I mean, on that. Yeah. Yeah. It hasn't mo- actually motivated people. Um, I think what's interesting I have to note too, is that the tone of patience that I have personally has also changed. So initially people seemed very worried, very concerned prior to the vaccine as well. Um, very concerned about the health in my experience, really concerned whether they got other people sick, that sort of thing. The narrative, and I have found this from other colleagues, there's been this change with patients that people are a bit more hostile and a bit more angry and a bit more trying to bait, for me personally, trying to bait their healthcare worker into a discussion on whether it's real, whether any of this exists, whether, I mean, so. I was going to ask you, how do you see that? how you see that manifesting itself. So you see it, as far as that, that change, like that hostility or whatever it, it may was, be. It, I, and I don't know, we've, my colleagues and I have recently talked about that it, within the last, seems like a couple of months, there was something that, that changed. And again, it's more of a antagonistic is the best word, actually more of a antagonistic approach to the healthcare workers. Versus someone comes in the hospital, they're sick. Hey, what do I got to do to feel better? Mm-hmm. Now it's more like challenging everything they've heard on social media. Want you know? And again, that I don't want to get into like that kind of uh, discussion or debate, you know? Because certainly yeah. nothing I'm going to say today do I want to get on a scientific soapbox because I'm not an epidemiologist and I'm not a virologist. This right. is just my truth and what I'm seeing. So. But they've become a host. They, meaning patients I've seen, have become, yeah, antagonist. They they are angry. And you're part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. Healthcare workers are part of the whatever problem. They're we're part of it. So, to make sure that I I am getting your perspective correct, um, from a visual standpoint. Yeah. You're essentially talking about say previously where the majority of the conversations when it came to medical advice, um, care advice, whatever it might be, it had a certain tone to it. And then now perhaps you see a shift to where there's a higher percentage of those interactions, although you may be communicating the same information as you were before, maybe the, the tone of that interaction is would I be using the wrong word to say there's a bit more like mistrust or more questioning about like Absolutely. what's what's Absolutely. your motive in telling me to do this Absolutely. particular thing? Is that specifically no. related though to, in your opinion, though, do you think that's specifically related to when you're trying to give advice on how to take care of themselves because they are positive with COVID or you're talking just in general, like just general medical advice that people are I, in some cases? In, no. in general, medical advice in some cases. Interesting. Okay. But um, okay. specifically, by by the time 
I see um, someone who has been positive with COVID, they're symptomatic. I mean, they're very sick. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is not, um, luckily, we definitely have heard of every, you know, there's so many people that just have minor cold symptoms. I'm so grateful for that. So by the time I see someone, if they're hospitalized, they're sick, you know. Yeah. Um, But even in that state, um, argumentative and... Uh, even in that state, even that state, as a matter of fact, you know, certainly I'm not going to say specifically what I've heard, but you know, maybe a colleague, (laughs) you know, you have a patient, allegedly, allegedly, you have a patient that's very, 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 very ill, you know, and so you're worried about, it it doesn't matter what's happened before they came in. They're very ill. You're there to take care of them. And they still are asking you if you think this is real. You're still at, they're asking you if you think it's man-made. They're asking you and you're like, I'm just trying to save you. Like none of that yeah. matters to me in this moment. Glee said that none of this, none of that matters to me in this moment. I'm just right. trying to do X, Y, and Z. It, and it, and I, I do feel that way. You know, when I'm in the hospital, it, it's whatever. None of that noise matters to me right now. It doesn't matter in this moment, right? Um, but yeah, it just uh, what, and that that hostility towards healthcare workers has then just astronomically exacerbated the overall PTSD, the mental health of healthcare workers. And I certainly, mm-hmm. I, I just don't want to leave today and disregard that it's not the one thing. So when you initially asked me to do this podcast, I uh, reached out to other healthcare workers because I did have a bit of like, I'm not good enough. I believe the kids call that um, imposter syndrome. Yeah. Like, <laughs> despite yeah, the fact they, that I've been doing do. it for almost 20 years. And, you know, right. I work, and I even said to you, well, I work in a small hospital, you know, like, yeah. so I did reach out to colleagues. And the number one thing that was across the board, no matter what hospital, whether they're a pathologist Mm-hmm. Another respiratory therapist in education, critical care physicians, they all said, we're tired. We're just tired. Mentally, we're so tired. Hmm. And I think we, and, and again, the the attitudes, which that's not a great word, but like, I think contributing to that is this overall hostility, this narrative that now and people are angry for different reasons, right? It's not just, you know, they feel like they've been lied to for, I'm using that as an example, but right. like people overall are tired, you know? Yeah. So then you get into a situation where they're very sick and they potentially are looking at death and their own mortality. Um, and I just happen to be there for them to take it, I suppose, take that take it out. On. out. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and that's you can't, uh, you can't hmm. take it very personally, um, but at the same time, it, it definitely has contributed. And I think what again, getting to the human side of it, I think something people don't think about as well as far as healthcare workers is that, for instance, if you J.K. if you don't want to hear anything about COVID, you can shut the world off. You literally can go in a room. And, yeah, I mean that's pretty extreme, right? But like. <laughs> I feel like I'm living a double life, like go to work and I'm rinse and repeat. I'm in this weird loop of COVID, but then I can't leave work 
and come home and not talk about COVID. Why? Because again, it's affected everybody's life. So it's everywhere. I, I can't get away from it. Um, yeah. Which I is... call it COVID conversation fatigue. Oh, yeah. That's I, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to use that term, but that's, that's what I've now coined it is yeah. COVID conversation fatigue. Because yeah, it's just... we, we had this incredibly, uh, incredible ability, excuse me, incredible ability, there we go, mm-hmm. to maneuver initially as healthcare workers because it's very ebb and flow. And you heard if it's a fluid situation, flattening, there's all these terms that we heard in the beginning. And I think in general, we did the best that we could do. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do. I believe that in my heart. But now it's like we're tired of pivoting, we're tired of maneuvering <laughs> yeah. all around. Right. Um, and then again, you have this bit of a narrative that's being created that that we're part of the whole conspiracy, you know. Um, and not only that, but we're whatever conspiracy it is, right? But mm-hmm. uh, not only that, it's astronomical numbers. So again, yeah. we spoke a little while ago about seeing death because in healthcare we see death, but not at this level, not at this level. Um, and I, th- I, I again speak reaching out to um, healthcare workers. Um, one of my colleagues said, and they work at a bigger hospital. They said, "I can't wait to start helping people live again." <laughs> Oh man. Hmm. And that was not the only kind of conversation I've had across the board. Again, this hmm. is just my truth because I right. know someone's going to listen to this and say, well, my sister's aunt's uncle's dog, you know, friend's dog walker also works in a hospital and that's not what they're experiencing. And that's great. Cause that's yeah. the truth. But right. um, I'm certainly coming from my circle. That's kind of all over. Um, and I, it, that was profound when that person said that to me. I can't wait to help people live again. Hmm. Um, it's huge. That's heavy. Yeah, that's. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate your willingness to share your perspective, and it really encapsulates. I think that's the right word it really summarizes and puts in a really um, a really good way the whole reason I wanted to have this conversation. Yeah. Because if you can have one person who listens to this conversation, I know it's been a, I know we've talked for quite a while. And one of the reasons that I'm always okay with that, because I've had guests in the past that were like, I'm so sorry that it went so long. I kind of feel that way. You're really hard to talk to. It's been, it's terrible. (laughs) Well, some people, (laughs) some people would say I am. Um, So one of the reasons that I tell them like, Hey, I, I hear where you're coming from. Here's why I, I truly just don't care when a conversation goes long is because this right here is an example of how many layers deep things can go behind or underneath people or inside of people. And I want people to think about that before they decide to have a reaction to what someone says or does when you have the ability to. So I do understand that there may be moments where 
let's go to the extreme. Your life is in danger. You need to make a quick reaction. Understand that. I'm talking everyday interactions, conversations, um, experiences with people. If more people would just take not even, you don't have to take two hours like a podcast. You can take one minute before you say something just to say, help me understand where you're coming from. Right. And I would say, unfortunately, most of the time, most of the times when I talk to somebody and they say that they took a moment to do that, like a prime example that was shared with me was somebody was um, shopping somewhere and they had a really bad experience. They had a, a person at a customer service counter that they felt like had an attitude with them. And they were trying to return something. The person said, no, this is like an everyday conversation that most people have, right? Go to a customer service counter. You want to try and return something. Uh, It was like outside of policy or something. And the person said no, but it was just the way that they said it to the the customer. And instead of having an immediate reaction, the, the person in their own way just said like, do you mind just taking a minute just to let me know why why I'm not why you're not able to make this exception? Like they didn't blow up and be like, "Well, that's ridiculous. Get me." You know, they just said, "Can you just let me know what's going on?" And the person literally took a deep breath. the The worker took a bit. It took a deep breath. It was just like, "I'm really sorry. I'm having a bad day." They had just gotten screamed at by the previous customer, and they were just like, "I'm going to be honest with you. That put me in a mood." hold on just a minute. Let me see what I can do. (laughs) And, and my friend was like, you know, I was, when they told me what happened, then I was willing to be much more understanding about it, but it also shouldn't have taken for me to, you know, have to hear about the bad thing that happened to them to be more understanding. You know what I mean? And it, and it could go both ways. And I think that what I, what I think about when you talk about the interactions that you have, that you, I'm not going to say, I'm assuming you're not saying every interaction. What you're saying is a a larger percentage now than what you had seen before tend to be more contentious is my hope is that at least one person who's listening to this remembers this conversation the next time that they're interacting with a healthcare professional, somebody in the medical field, or just people in general. And if that person seems a little short with you, understand that perhaps the person before them may not have been so friendly and it doesn't mean that people get to treat you like dog meat like i'm not okay with that i think that it also sometimes can just take something like just keeping it simple and not trying to antagonize the situation and not trying to bait people into particular conversations i just feel like I don't know. As a general public, are I feel like that's something that we could probably handle pretty well. Everybody can afford to just kind of take a minute and take a deep yeah. breath or take a pause before reacting to certain things. Because yeah. I just, I don't know. That's kind of my thing. That's why I reached out to you and I'd let you know that from my perspective, yeah. the two fields that I see that are under the most amount of stress right now and no disrespect to anyone else. It's Absolutely. just the two fields that I see in my view that are under the most amount of stress right now who are getting no break, like there is no room to breathe right now, is right. healthcare and education. So I think in any yeah. business, um, when there's a bit of a crack, right, There, there's cracks in healthcare that we all can agree on. There's been a teacher shortage for a long time. Healthcare, mm-hmm. there's cracks. Um, I think what what this pandemic did was just uncover um, uh, 
uh, long-term underinvestments in certain areas. If I that's just that's it, like, very kind of like fair. That. Very yeah. Um, that's a that's a friendly way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> a friendly way to say I, it. You know, as we go into the I, the as we go into an hour-long conversation, you know, I just have to say again, I feel like I haven't done my. I hope I've done my colleagues justice. I hope. Um, that was a big fear of mine that I would go into this and not represent healthcare workers, respiratory care practitioners well enough. You know, I want to be able to represent them and, and say that we are very tired. We are doing the best we can and we are still human. So outside of this, I still have a family to take care of. I still have lives to you know i still have basic things as we all do as we all want our lives to move on but we have this weird time capsule in our healthcare system right now we're yeah. kind of stuck in in this right here um and of course not to get into it too much but we talk about the deaths of course nine hundred thousand now um which is incredible to me but what we don't hear now is a long-term effects long-term serious effects, um, not just the deaths. And I think that needs to be kept in mind too, which again is a whole nother podcast. Yeah, it, it is. Man, you know, we could, but I hope, we I just could keep really hope I've done justice for people that I love. I mean, yeah, that I love, truly love. I mean, my, is my coworkers and my other healthcare people. You know, when I messaged, again, this critical care physician who I love, who is a hard, you know, like he's, mm -hmm. people would think he's scary. He's incredibly intelligent. And when I message him just to say, hey, how are you? And they message me, Mac, I'm not okay. Like, hmm. you know yeah. what I mean? That it's, I, I hope if anything that people take away just the knowledge of what's going on. You know, nothing else. You don't even have to be away the knowledge of the reality of what's going on. Talking about the divisiveness without talking about, I mean, that's why I appreciate this platform and you asking me to do this because so much of our information is on platforms that can be defined as divisive, even though they're right. not meaning to be, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it's important to have conversations like this. Yeah. Uh, well, perfect. Yeah. Well, I think that 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 right there is a solid place um, place to end here. So. Okay. I'm so sorry. Being said, <laughs> so much time. I I still don't know why you're sorry, but I'm not here okay. to argue with you. Okay. It's um it's helped me understand, not helped me agree. So I would I I disagree with you needing to be sorry, but whatever works <laughs> okay. for you. Um, Again, the, this is the whole point. It's a conversation that has a lot of layers to it. And it would be very easy to begin a conversation and just go straight into, how does it make you feel when people post certain things? And you can have a reaction and it can be just as this conversation could then turn out to be just as divisive as all of the other things. Yeah. But I think it's important to, if you're truly trying to get an understanding and get context to really listen to part of someone's story. So as much detail as we got, I, I know there's other, you know, different roads and sure. exits there too, but I think that just what I hope that people do is that they remember that, you know, Lori is an individual and also 
there are so many other lorries in the world. There are people who have a backstory. And just because you interact with that person in that moment, you have no idea what's gone into where they are today. And especially when it comes to healthcare, um, people are there trying to do the best that they can. And they also have families to go to, they have lives. So just kind of keep that in mind um, as we travel through life here. So with that, Lori, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for everything that you do, your contributions. I don't care what you say, healthcare, (laughs) uh, now more than ever. I I love what you you guys do at Muscle Feed though, too. You make health accessible. I love that. I've said that that. to you before. So thank you for everything that you do. I I appreciate that. All right. Well, with that, we are going to wrap up with today's episode. So thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.